This is the last episode of our Xenosaga 1 season, and I have not really put any Patreon ads in here because I was too lazy to record one the whole time. But if you have enjoyed this season, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash pitchdrop. Like, to put this into perspective, between all of us playing the game, all of the guests playing the game, recording, editing, note-taking, fucking Fletcher played all of these video games like some sort of pervert. Like, we have put, like, 600 man-hours into this podcast, and if you liked it at all, please give us a dollar a month. You get another version of this podcast about a different game. It's pretty sick. Like, put a lot of effort into this. I hope you liked it, and I hope you thought it was worth paying for. There will also be a bonus episode for this season of Lightning Strikes Thrice, wherein I talk with previous guest Kyle about a lot of the philosophy and do a deep dive into some of what goes on in this game. That's good. That's going to be a real good episode, folks. Y'all should listen. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. I know we have a lot of new listeners on this season, and we appreciate you. Yeah, thanks. It's been fun. Strikes Thrice, the JRPG Games Club podcast that utterly refuses to show any character development. This is Season 6, Episode 9, covering the final dungeon and ending of Xenosaga Episode 1 for the PS2. I'm your host, Chris Taylor, and my pronouns are he, him, and with me today is... Fletcher, he, him. Ryan, they, them. What happened last time? Shion and company descended after their stolen magical girl into the Song of Nephilim, a creation of the mad Dr. Mizrahi and the device that summoned the Gnosis Plague upon the galaxy. At the bottom, they rescue Momo, but not before Albedo steals Mizrahi's Y data from her memories. The Blue Testament shows up to cover Albedo's escape, being revealed to everyone but our party to somehow be Virgil, the mook who died on the Wuglinde. The Blue Testament is the guy in the blue cape. That's what they're called. I don't think the game ever explicitly says that, so I don't think we ever explicitly said that. The people in the capes are referred to as testaments. They will next game, but I'm just using the name now because it's better than the idiots in the capes. Sure, sure. I'm just providing clarification for the listeners. Fair. Uh, Virgil then gets pissed and leaves because Albedo takes the escape route he was given and uses it to launch Proto-Merkaba, the factory that built Momo, which is also a weapon that can absorb Gnosis and turn them into lasers. He aims it at second Milsha and taunts Junior to come and stop this then. And that leads us into today. So the first thing is that despite the game going, there's like 10 minutes tops until second Milsha is at risk of that gun. Captain Matthews is totally willing to just fuck off to the dock colony, if you ask. And if you don't, you're fucked. <laughs> yeah, for yeah. real. Just this whole final sequence feels so leisurely and non-urgent, which is funny because this is the only time in the game where there's explicitly an extremely urgent time limit. I guess kind of the trial. Yeah. And also the beginning of the game when you're late for a meeting for four hours. <laughs> also oh, true. Right. 
I guess what we're saying is don't set your clocks in Xenosaga world. Yeah, for real. Yeah. Also, I know the UMN exists and that, you know, certain matter can be phased instantly across space. But like you're trying to cover thousands of kilometers in less than 10 minutes and then go through a massive dungeon. And also you can do side quests. But yeah, it's like fucking albedo is just waiting the whole time he's like 10 minutes and so yeah it, it, it's funny to imagine that that albedo is just like huh i guess junior called my bluff i just want to see a bonus scene of him watching from the proto Merkaba as the elsa drives away to the dock colony and be like <laughs> well that's not very sporting <laughs> just the jeopardy theme while he waits <laughs> yeah <laughs> or albedo doing the sonic the hedgehog foot tap <laughs> That's very appropriate, actually. <laughs> Gotta go fast. But it's a different foot he pulled off and he's tapping it on the table. <laughs> Just tapping a Kirschwasser's foot on the fucking reactor core. <laughs> so right as we're about to head into this dungeon, Alan is complaining again. He's like, this is dangerous and a bad idea. And Shion is like, you don't have to come with me. And then Alan responds, I will accompany you to the very depths of hell. He's not lying. She's like, what did you say? And then that's what he says that. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, you head in and this dungeon is so bland. It's so short. There's definitely a reason they merged it with the song in the remake. Well, OK, it is geographically short. The Combat encounters are very long. Yeah, but I would even venture so far as to say that it is a dungeon of normal length. Just compared to Xenosaga Episode 1 dungeons, it feels like a breeze because usually these things take like four and a half to five hours for some reason. Yeah, there's only four dungeons in the game and they make up half the playtime. Yeah, for real. So, yeah, I think that basically the only thing that Proto Merkaba does the dungeon well is that it portrays scale well. Like the big things that you encounter feel extremely big. It gave me the most Xenogears vibes of any dungeon in the game because there are so many stairs to climb and switches to press. Well, also the shape of it kind of indicates to you where in the structure you are. Mm -hmm. Right? Because of the um how the ramps expand wider on both sides, you really get the idea that you're basically like at the top of the brainstem of the proto Merkab, and then you have to ride the elevator down to the base where the reactor is. Love to have my reactor right next to the giant laser. <laughs> I mean, how else do you power it efficiently? You have to run wires. That's true. The first real event that happens here is we find a terminal that contains a massive data on the Realian series that preceded Momo. And for some reason, everyone in your party is so fucking dumb and is very confused about why it's there, even though this is the giant Momo in Kirschwasser factory. Why would the notes for the development of the Realians not be in the facility where the Realians are made? Come on. <laughs> um, the next terminal then shows us a lot of medical notes from people wounded on Milsha. Shion picks up from the fragments that these are all psych patients, not hospital patients, due to the meds they were prescribed. And also due to the fact that her mom was one of those psych patients as well. They don't state that, but yeah. Yeah, they don't state it, but they imply it. There's like an awkward pause where Shion looks very concerned, and that's where you infer that. Right. Yeah. So 
We'll get to this revelation, I guess, a little bit later where Momo asks about the people that died. But is the implication here that Mizrahi drew a bunch of the old series realians and psych patients to Proto Merkaba in order to sacrifice them so that Momo could be created? Like, I don't know, would these damaged and discarded people help draw the Gnosis in or were they disposable fodder? I couldn't figure out why exactly all the patients. The read I get on this, it's like a Mass Effect 2 where they get slurried to be like actual biological material because the Realians are made out of that. Mm. So I'm just going to spoil a very minute thing from 3 because that's the only place this is ever followed up on. Uh, they just say that Utic was sabotaging realians here under the guise of a treatment facility, and that helped even more chaos happen during the Milshin conflict. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah, I like the slurry answer better. Yeah. It's stupid, and it's a one-off line later, and it has no bearing until, like, another 120 hours and two games later, which is why I'm just willing to throw that out now. The slurry answer is so dumb because it's hard. It's a, it's the worst. So we like greed artificial people are made of people. Yeah. Well, and like then Momo in 15 minutes when she asks why a bunch of people had to die so that she could be created, they didn't. A bunch of people died and also she was created. Yeah, that sucks, dude. Oh, my God. Love to have a bunch of seemingly important things be completely unconnected and non sequiturs. Yeah, I'm going to just throw this out there. Nothing that happens in this dungeon really matters mm -hmm. until the very end fight. Mm -hmm. Well, that cut and cutscene is very sick. Yeah, yeah. that's true. So long, though. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Two vocal themes. Oh, my God. So the second vocal theme is better than the first. The first is so bad. It's so bad. Oh, you prefer Kokoro to pain? Yes, I prefer Kokoro to pain. Put that on my tombstone. Also, I love that the singer for both is Joanne Hogg. <laughs> I pointed that out, too. <laughs> Just the surname Hogg with two G's is never not going to be funny. So it's, yes. it's not that the song is bad. It's that the recording is awful on the official oh. OST. There's a new recording of it and it's good. I think that pain has a pretty corny melody. Well, the melody is corny, but it doesn't sound it's not supposed to sound like shit like it does. Right. Yes. A lot of things are over compressed to fit on this disc, especially with all the FMV. Oh, yeah, which is funny. Again, we've talked about it briefly before, but Xenosaga Episode 1's DVD is notorious for failing on a bunch of PS2s because it was very early in the PS2 dual layer technology. I can't wait to talk about how bad those explosions look. Oh, my God, they're so bad. So eventually, uh, through all of this going up and down stairs and stuff, we eventually find a hologram map of Proto Merkaba. Uh, we are above the reactor core and we will have to take elevators to get down there, which is roughly 40% through this dungeon. It's worth noting this place has insane copy paste floors after the first four, probably a third to half of the dungeon. It's a full you half. You climb a staircase which is mirrored on both sides of the place to an identical room that just has different walls blocking off parts here and there over and over with a gnosis that respawns between each floor on the stairwell. So the way it works is it works different than everywhere else. If you transition from stairwell to middle, then back to the same stairwell, they don't respawn. 
But if you cross to the other side, they'll have respawned. Both sides will respawn. It basically doesn't respawn between the two rooms like usual. So you don't have to fight 5000 guys as you go up and down the second the left side. I think that's silly. It is very dumb. It's also really irritating. Yeah. So after some of the worst encounters imaginable, including the it's technically a mid boss, but let's not go there. Proto Dora. Is that the giant mecha? That is the giant mecha. Mm-hmm. The, the side enemies have a really cool design, the shoots. Yeah. It's a brutal fight, and this guy is just chilling in a hallway. And this is basically an ES with two friggin' snake tentacle lasers, a bunch of ads, and some of the most irritating defense and attacks in the game for a random oh encounter. God. Okay, so, um... <sighs> I hated this boss so much. So first of all, it's only weak to beam damage, but when the battle starts, it has a 100% beam damage shield up that you have to wear down using blades. Yeah. uh, Which don't actually do much damage. They just wear the beam damage shield down. Second, it can heal itself for massive health when it's down in health, which like it can heal itself for basically 3000 unless you use chaos's supreme judgment, which uh, has enemies healing capability. But it's not a status effect that lasts the entire duration of the battle. So you have to like keep using it in order to make sure that the healing doesn't completely erase your progress. I hated Protodora. There is a cheap strategy for this boss, which is to get in your eggs with the beam sabers because they are both blade and beam type damage. Oh, nice. So uh, they both break the shield, fuck it up and do about 500 a swing. That's the way to do it. The boss is so slow that your eggs are not any slower than the boss itself. Hmm. Well, my zero egg strategy backfires yet again. This is like the only time I used eggs in this dungeon. Uh, Mm -hmm. Just for the record, my strategy for this dungeon is... uh, in between the episodes, everybody extracted the speed shoes, but I noticed that Xion's rain blade had insanely high ether attack scaling, like way stronger scaling than any other attack in the game. So Xion also is wearing the speed shoes, which gives double effect on the extracted skills, so we're at plus 75% speed. Then Junior casts a speed machine on her. Rain blades is up to like attack four under ether attack is maxed out. And then we do like 800 damage four times for every time the Gnosis come through, because not only is she faster, that means she's also getting boost turns faster. Like in some battles, it was hard to spend all of the boost I had for her. Oh my god. And then you just also speed machine chaos, who is now the healer using medical all. <laughs> and it's just everybody is support staff for Shion feeding her like the 30 boost packs I had at this point. Yeah, it's worth pointing out at this point in the game is when you are basically guaranteed, if you did not earlier, to unlock Shion's all party attack, the first one in the game. And with it, she becomes an all-out murder machine. Yeah, dude. It, I killed the last boss of this before it got four turns. Incredible. Yeah, the final fights of this game either are you broke everything or, oh, this is going to take a bit. Mm-hmm. Albedo took a little just because he was so resistant to beam. So Albedo, because he has less than 9999 health, goes down to one hit of Erde Kaiser. Yeah, the one optional boss, and I think the final boss is in the 10 plus K range. But either way, 
we eventually come to a map of the known universe, except for one black part that might contain Lost Jerusalem, Earth, but we don't know what's over there. Uh, remember when this was a plot point so stupid a kid pointed out the fallacy in Star Wars? I do. Wait, what what plot point is that? That there's a that there's like a, a hole of unobservable space? Yeah, remember when they're talking in, I think it's Attack of the Clones, and Obi-Wan's like, there's a hole in the map. And a kid goes, maybe the thing you're looking for is in the hole in the map if it's oh. not on the map. <laughs> and he's like, my God, you're right. I can't believe we give Israel so much money that the whole planet became called Jerusalem. <laughs> the Israel-Palestine conflict finally got so bad that we just chucked the whole planet in a bin. The two-planet solution. <laughs> Milsha and second Milsha, which still has people trying to wipe one out. Damn, oh my dude. God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Do be like that. that are occasionally interrupted by cutscenes, the room where Momo was born. She has put two and two together that during the Encephalon dive, the flashback to the Milshin conflict where Joachim hucked himself off a building and the planet dissolved was actually a thing that happened in real life. It was the summoning of the Gnosis, roughly the same time as her birth. The planet was destroyed to summon the Gnosis to power a device that built her. Her question now does that make me an abominable machine like this place? I just want to point out that someone watching with me did ask, so wait, is that whale in the sky her dad? What the fuck is this? <laughs> uh, it, uh, well, you know, sin is jacked, so it, it, dads can be sky whales. That's a much better answer than I had at the time. <laughs> uh, also, I love Xion once again, just being so naive as to the depths of human nature because she's always in her own little world where she's like, surely there's no parent that could ever think of their child as an abomination. Yeah, uh, there can be shitty parents that think of their children as abominations, Shion. Sorry. 
Yeah, no one else in the room backs her up on this. Yeah. You know, this is unrelated, but there is a lot of times in these cutscenes in this ending bit where she asks Cosmos a question and Cosmos just stares at her dead-eyed and doesn't say anything and my brain automatically says, <laughs> I'm a computer in there. That makes the part in the ending so much better. <laughs> yeah, it was. You need to go yes. on a diet. I'm oh, a computer. I love Cosmos just dead-eyed no-selling that joke. Oh my god, yeah. yeah, she no-sells everything. She's great. The worst chain in the game comes as you bore the elevator down, which is after the final save point. So um, backtrack after this just to save and heal up again. Fuck this place. Four nasty groups of Gnosis that buff and heal spawn on top of you every 30 seconds or so. The only kindness is they give you a little break between each to mend you up and heal. So, um, do you remember throughout this season how i've been talking about wanting to seriously engage with the game's systems the whole no, time is that yes. a thing have you said that have i yeah oh <laughs> they have chris please. inserts the supercut he's been preparing this whole time <laughs> <laughs> so i had like 75 ether pack dx's so i was just able to early kaiser my way through basically the rest of the dungeon starting at this elevator i i was sick of it i was sick of it oh the last one on this elevator is cool it is just um it's got that azazel that fat fucker that i complained about the encounter of three of them later this is the only battle where he does it but they can um do like zombie to you and the last encounter on this elevator is just the unalesca fight Oh, damn. The most interesting fight in Final Fantasy X is just a random encounter in this game. <laughs> well, I missed it because I just mecha summoned my way through the end of this game. One of those fights is just the three guys that don't do anything but heal you. It's weird. <laughs> this whole thing is like, I don't know why this sequence is here. It's the elevator scrolling fight from a beat em up, except it's a JRPG. Mm hmm. And then there's a hallway of death with like the hardest encounters in the game in it that you could run by or fight them all if you're me because you're trying to get a few more tech points to level up Rainblade one more time. Yeah, if you want to farm, this is the hallway. Yeah, but this is the only hallway in the whole dungeon where you can actually run around the enemies. They know. Yeah. And after all this, you reach the reactor. Oh, before we move on, just got to say Gnosis designs. Cool. Like big nobody vibes. Yeah, totally. Everything has white. Uh, one of them basically looks like the samurai nobodies from Kingdom Hearts 2. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Anyhow, Albedo has been waiting for us. And as everyone runs in, he announces himself with a cackle. And then he's just like, let's pick up where we left off. He hops down, grows a goth aura and starts fighting. He comes so close. Well, so what he says is, this is the power everyone has, will. And I'm like, thank you for just basically saying will to power in case we weren't sure what your whole deal was. Well, and then and then he does the seventh street Nietzsche quote of of his script, the whole game, where he says, perception and pain are one and the same. Feel my pain for yourself. So he's been, like to feel is to hurt. Therefore, hurting is the only thing that, like, makes us aware of of life. It's 
fuck off, Albedo. Most dismissive jerk-off motion in the whole world. The more he is just a shitty, like, Nisha quote bot, the more I like him because it comes off as a massive own on Nietzsche. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm not gonna lie, I have liked Albedo more and more the more they just let him talk. I can't wait to hear your reaction to the next game. <laughs> All right. So this fight, uh, not bad, really. This is the easy part of the final boss. So easy. Everything he does is hard countered by just having chaos in your party where you just spam light and wings. Mm hmm. The only things that are really worth mentioning is he can give himself a 50 percent speed boost part way in and he which is huge. Yours are 25. Yeah. And he has a drain heal. That's it. You keep someone on healing this whole time. This fight's good. Stop attacking every once in a while to give people back EP. You're going to want that topped off more than you want to damage race the guy. Speed shoes win the day. My man's so slow. Mm -hmm. Even Momo could probably outpace him if you just give her speed shoes. He should have grown more legs. More legs equals more speed. <laughs> That's true. You do get through Quap faster than you get through getting over it. That's my only uh, data point for this. <laughs> the absolute last thing I want is to hear Albedo saying seven vagines as he grows a bunch of limbs. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the problem is, of course, Albedo is not the final boss since you know you can't kill him and we would not call that a climax to this game. Wait, do I know that? Oh, I guess I do know that and I forgot. Yeah, you absolutely know that. He's ripped off his fucking head repeatedly. Okay. You are talking to the guy who at the end of 13-2 thought, you're right, I should stab Caius. God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, my dude is currently vamp. Uh, you can't kill him. Mm-hmm. I am immune to understanding the plot. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you do a podcast. Well, I'm immune to under thematically understanding what the game is about. <laughs> right. So this is where we get the actual discussion between Albedo and Junior that you kind of expected before the fight. Here's your last bit of plot development for the game. Albedo taunts Junior and says, of course, the URTV succumbed to the Song of Nephilim and went mad because Junior, quote, was a coward. He broke the link. Junior admits it, he shied away from something that is not yet revealed, and that's what caused the chaos on the planet with the murderous Realian army. However, we will also later find out they retcon this a little too. Yeah, so a um, couple of things. First, Junior has been so self-absorbed this whole game where he thinks that he's the only person who has a mission and that he just like, oh, I'm sorry to keep dragging you guys into my battles, into my fights. And it's like, my guy, like a planet is in danger of being incinerated. That is important to the rest of your party. So like I assumed that he would just very easily admit that it was his fault because he has already thought that everything was about him. But he struggles for a while to admit that he was afraid. And then when he does, he is like, yeah, you're right. I couldn't control my fear. And Albedo straight up like the uh, like like the car focus group sketch is like, oh, my God, he admitted it's great for what it's worth. I feel like we should point out literally everyone else in the cast had a reason to go to second Milsha. Junior has just been dicking along because Albedo showed up. 
Like, Junior's basically just coming along because Albedo showed up, gave him two middle fingers, and went, <laughs> Junior kind of sucks in this game. He puts so much mustard on that cackle. I love it. Yeah. Fuck me up. I love Albedo now. Mm-hmm. He's one of those characters that's like, this dude would be the standout of this series if it weren't for, you know, everything else. Yeah. Yeah. But at this point, he goes, oh, remember the fact that I was charging the gun to fire again about that? And we get a long sequence of every safety shutting off as the reactor opens up and all the gnosis the ship swallowed have merged with the power core. So Albedo's just like, peace, and we get to fight the reality-warping Sophie Pathos. Um, also, right before we hit the fight, I also want to point out that um, Albedo then thanks Junior for, because Albedo was the only only URTV who got out, basically. Um, everyone was succumbing, like all the URTVs were succumbing one by one because the link was broken and they were succumbing to the song of Nephilim and going crazy. And Albedo was able to climb out and discover a, quote, whole new world, which parallels the council that has Yuli Mizrahi in it that we've seen, who are also trying to achieve a new world for humanity. And so both Albedo and the people that we're working for want the same thing, which is, you know, secret heaven basically. Also, I actually, I got ten, points times 10 on Albedo, and then you go immediately into a new battle, and I've never, and couldn't use them, and I've never been more disappointed in anything. Yeah, same thing happened to me. I was Also, uh, get ready for basically nothing you did in this game to matter on a save transfer. Well, okay, so, kind of skip ahead a little bit. The funniest thing that happened to me the whole time we're playing this game is the game asked me to save my clear data. I say yes, and then it crashes to the BIOS, and I just fucking laughed and turned off my computer. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Ah, uh, so our end boss. This first phase is simple. It has a couple of single target attacks it uses every round. Heal up, prep your boost, get ready for the nasty part of the fight. The second is where it starts to suck. Sophie begins summoning ads called Jaldabaoth, and you cannot hit the boss until these are cleared from the battlefield. Unless you're using all attacks that hit more than one row, because the boss is in a back row. So if you have a party attack, you get him fine. It doesn't really do much, though, given that you have to take out X number of these to progress the phase. It does 700 damage every turn. I'm just saying it's not a huge thing because this is where the boss starts becoming very scripted in its moveset. I guess I am excited to find out about these mechanics. <laughs> uh, Jaldas are like FF bombs. If you get their health low but don't finish them off before their turn, they will self-destruct and deal a massive damage to the party. God help you if this lands on a crit turn. After three of these guys have died, be it by your hand or their own, they then become Ratatokes that it summons. This part is nasty because unlike the Jaldabouths, Ratatokes do not stop the boss from attacking you, and the instant the first one appears, uh, Sophie Pathos will gain its final form attacks. Shadow Rain, Dark Prophet, Eternal Vestige, White Light, which debuffs everyone, and the real motherfucker, Dark Omen, an all-target attack that does 750 plus to everyone. All right, 
so the uh, Jalda Bouths, the ones that are like bombs that self-destruct, look like little tapeworms. And then the Ratatoke. Yeah, the Ratatokes. They're like little cocoons that turn into beetles to attack you. Um, they're both cool and weird looking and, and both look like spawn from a Gnosis to me. They're rad. Yeah, the second guys are just like the things from the opening of Final Fantasy X. Like the little sin scales that float in the air and then turn into little bugs. Yeah. Yep. I'm very convinced a lot of Gnosis design looked at sin and FF10 and went, yo, get on that. Especially the whales that appear uh-huh. everywhere in space in this game. Yeah, so many space whales. This game is just the spirits within that looks like Final Fantasy X. Yeah. It's sick. Uh-huh. This last chunk of the fight is just a grudge match. It will cast Dark Omen roughly every five to six turns. It's going to cycle through the rest of its potent attacks at random between. Your job is to not die to Dark Omen while keeping up healing. Sophie Pathos cannot heal, and if you can trickle blows onto it, you will make it out alive. I wiped two Sophie Pathos once, and it's entirely because the timing of white light fucked me. So I had been using best ally on chaos, which basically it's 50 MP. You can only use it once a fight or sorry, 50 ether points, not magic points. Uh, You can only use it once a fight and it auto revives everybody once to full health, but it counts as a buff. And so uh, white light can totally counteract it. And so what I ended up doing the second time was buffing myself with other shit, waiting until it casted white light once and then immediately popping best ally so that my whole party could survive one dark omen blast. And it was enough to get me through it. I was depressingly overpowered. I ended this game at level 42 after the final boss. (laughs) I held back from going full murder machine, but at this point I had full stats and Dark Omen still hits potent. Uh, I took 750. I saw mentions in a few guides and things when I was checking numbers. It's like, this does 800 to 900 damage. It's like, oof, thanks defense. It can't do anything to stop you from just like nuking it extremely hard, which is how I had like specced my party the second I got Rainblade. I get that. Yeah, I I had trouble with it, but I I made it through through the power of Chaos's best ally skill. I think the reason Rainblade scaling is so high is because Xion's stats are so low. And she has so many tech attacks, they expect you to not dump points into her stats. Joke's on you, she got all the tech point upgrades, but whatever. (laughs) For what it's worth, uh, there's another way to really trivialize this fight if you did one of the optional bosses. So there are three optional bosses. One of them is Great Joe, a cowboy fetishist who wants to have a duel with Junior. Hell yeah. He's the coolest fight in the game because he allows for a lot more mechanical stuff but doesn't do any bullshit gimmicks. So you beat him and you get two things, a new ether skill, Buster Joe, and a new tech attack, which is a coin that flips over. And if you kill five things with that tech attack, it will power up the ether skill, which you can also power up again to. I think Maniac Joe is the second tier. If you just go around wiping some stuff with that coin attack, the Joe ether becomes monstrous and suddenly 
you have basically a second Erde Kaiser summon. It would not be that much time, given that you can go back to the tutorial dungeon. Yeah, exactly. You have the UMN, so this is feedable. It does not rely on you must kill X levels of enemies. It's kill five dudes. After we defeat the boss, the reactor begins to blow, everyone flees, but suddenly the whole place shudders and everyone falls to the ground. Cosmos informs everyone that the propulsion jets are active and that Proto Merkaba is about to colony drop onto second Milsha. This right here is the single most, oh my god, I have watched an anime and now I understand where this shit is from moment in the entire game because colony drops are a thing that happen in Gundam. Well, they happen rarely, but they're mentioned all the fucking time. And this is literally just a colony drop. Yeah. From the simian, Albedo cackles, wanting to see how strong the party really is. So there is a failsafe for this. From the control room halfway through the complex, the station can be forced to discard modules, which will break it into enough pieces to burn up in the atmosphere. The only problem is... This has to be done manually as you jettison piece after piece after piece, and it is involved process that can only be given from that control room. They have four minutes to do so. Cosmos volunteers herself and says, I only require one minute to reach the Elsa when this is done. Please hurry. I want to point out, this is one of the many stupid changes of the anime. There is an even dumber deus ex machina here. One of Albedo's Kirschwassers, named Kirsch, sacrifices herself to set this off because they've introduced a single one that he does not kill over the entire series who bonds with Xion, and so she gives up her life for humans. Oh my god. Oh. Also, she's the co-pilot inside the Simeon in the final battle. There's no soapy pathos. So she tries to murder them, gets out of the robot, and sacrifices herself. And that's this character's arc. Oh, my God. That sucks even more because this shit is really important to Cosmos and Xion's co-development. 
Yeah. Because this is Cosmos attempting an act of self-sacrifice and then Xion being like, no, what are you talking about? And Cosmos straight up says, my self-preservation module is functioning correctly, which I would like to posit as a total lie that Cosmos is lying to Xion at this point or that Cosmos knows somehow that they are going to have a magical connection that's going to save her life at the very end of the game. She says before that it will only take me one minute. Momo says the process only takes a minute and a half to do, so it gives her a lot of wiggle room. Yeah. Yeah. Also, she has a jetpack and can fly through space. It's fine. And she doesn't need to breathe either. I know. But yeah, the Cosmos escape and Xion psychic connection and and hand grab is so important to Xion and Cosmos that it is fucking ridiculous that the anime excises that. R.I.P. her shoulder, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. I need to remind people just because I don't think this has clicked how stupid that move is. The anime comes out after episode two. <laughs> oh, my God. God. They made all these changes to things that broke the story of two <laughs> after that game existed. Oh, my God. Get fucked, Europeans, where you only got the anime, then episode two and not even episode three. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. By the way, my favorite thing is that the day is saved because Tony is horny. <laughs> Explain. I think it's because... Tony is one of the only people who has just gone, you know what, sure, this tends to work out. Mm -mm. He has that head down and then swoop up into the left motion like, by God, about to risk it all. <laughs> he's a cowboy. Like, he's he, he is a true cowboy. Junior's a fake-ass cowboy. But Tony actually likes take risks and be all yeehaw about shit. Yeah, but the only other personality trait he has is is horny. <laughs> yeah. And incredibly toxic masculinity to the point that remember when he was destroyed by learning an eight-year-old robot outpiloted him? That was so fucking funny. Oh my <laughs> God, it's so good. incredibly great. He's in the bar drinking about it for like multiple plot advancements. Yeah. God. Yeah. So Tony plays the hero and I was like, hell yeah, Tony. I totally forgot that I was saying, oh my God, fuck off, Tony, like 20 hours ago. Tony is one of my favorite characters in this game because he becomes the person who just decides, you know what, if someone throws some space magic bullshit at me, sure, whatever. He stops yeah. questioning it, and he's the only one which saves everyone's lives so many times. <laughs> All right. His name is also fucking Tony. Yeah, I know. I know. In a game full of weird ass names, there's just a Tony. Junior says we're going to wait. And then you get a shot of Captain Matthews looking straight into the camera so you can remember his hat says, caution, I am a boozer, danger, danger. Yeah. So good. <laughs> In this version of the cutscene, it doesn't even say danger, danger anymore. They kept bonsai, bonsai. <laughs> I learned that they did actually redo the graphics on that hat by talking with one of the localizers of this game. It's a thing. Interesting. Yeah, that was actually way more English. It was bonsai, bonsai, caution, I am boozer. So they corrected the <laughs> A for grammar, but depending on the scene, some of it was baked into cutscenes and they could only do so much. Mm -hmm. 
I love it. It is so good. Yeah. So we should actually lay out the sequence of events that we're kind of talking about here very briefly. So during the escape, they get back to the Elsa and Junior forces Matthews to wait as long as possible before taking off. But when the Merkaba debris begins pelting the Elsa's engines, they override him and lift off. Shion, who's standing in the open airlock of the ship, is screaming at them over the comms to wait. And then Nephilim reaches out to Shion and tells her to see with her heart until suddenly she realizes that she can sense the robot. So she gives the order to pull to the port side 400 meters out. Matthews gives the entirely reasonable the fuck you say response. And then Tony just goes, all right, sure, whatever. And just does it. Matthews animation is so over the top. It might as well be that gif of Commander Shepard's head rotating 700 degrees. (laughs) (laughs) So then through the wall of Proto-Merkaba, Cosmos kool-aid man's out the side and jumps into shion's grasp dislocating her shoulder (laughs) just forever dislocating her shoulder fucking owned never play sports again yeah shion grabs the 300 plus pound robot with a single hand and immediately loses cosmos's grasp Mm mm-hmm and then i go where the fuck is ziggy why are you doing this shion and then ziggy shows up yep Because he already foresaw where this was going, and he's like, uh, you can't do this. (laughs) Yeah, let me grab your robot friend with my robot arm. So then after Ziggy shows up and grabs Cosmos, the crew escape. The cutscene then turns into the high-speed escape segment of a Gradius ending as the Elsa dodges past debris and explosions in narrow tunnels until reaching actual space. That is real, like, Aladdin escape from the temple vibes. 100%. 100%. Yeah, basically compare it to whatever cool action scene until a breakout into open space you like. It's pretty sick. And at this point, because it's an ending sequence, there is still a problem. Ziggy and Shion in the bay are like, this place is rocking way too much. Let's get to the bridge. They walk out to the bridge and a fucking inferno is on all the view screens. <laughs> Uh, the ship's balancer was damaged in the escape and they're coming in at way too steep an angle, risking burnup. The fucking Alan spaceship pilot expert over here just well actually Matthews about it. <laughs> to be fair, a scientist probably should be able to go, no, I'm pretty sure this thing's broken. Yeah, Alan is a brilliant scientist and engineer. We should never forget that. In this moment, I thought about how Captain Matthews doesn't want the Elsa damage because he's already in debt to Junior. And like in most of this section, I was just thinking about how bad of a boss that Junior is, is that he forces his employees to pay for repairs on their tools for the jobs he gives them. Yeah, maybe Cowboy Benjamin Button should not be a boss. But when you describe him as Cowboy Benjamin Button, that's sick, actually. (laughs) Yeah, that's way better than Junior's actual character. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Me when I realize I released Udu with this like gif of him turning instantly old. <laughs> <laughs> old Rupido is a cursed image. Oh my god. Ah. Uh, Chaos comes dangerously close to actually doing something as he stares at his hands while Nephilim goes, What will you do again? But then Cosmos walks past him and again starts doing render your pain unto me. 
Yeah. And it's pointedly also an inverse of Albedo, who says, you know, let me make you feel my pain. And now Cosmos is like, actually, let me absorb your pain. She hurls herself out of the ship from an aft hatch in a cannonball and says she's going to project an energy shield for about 90 seconds, during which they should really stabilize the ship. The last words they hear before the external cameras combust is, I am happy to be of service. You know, I'm not going to lie. It shames me to say it, but when Cosmos jumped out of the wall and it exploded, I felt a throat catch. Then in my brain, I'm like, this is a fucking dumb anime robot. Why are you like this? But the animations <laughs> are really good and sell everything. Yeah. Cosmos gets sick scenes. Yeah, Cosmos rules. It's just so weird. She's gone for so much of the plot, like for maintenance or whatever, right? She's not like really in episode one a lot. Well, she's like a focal point of episode one because she shows up, defies what Shion thinks should be her orders or programming, which makes everyone scared because she used to be a murder bot. And then she saves the day like she does that like three or four times over the course of the game of her being like, I will help Shion. I will help. And then everyone's like, what? That's bad. I don't like this at all. And then she helps and is fine and unleashes some power that no one realized she should have had. To be fair, the first time she says, I will help, she fires a minigun through Virgil. The later times are a lot more supportive. <laughs> That's true. That is true. We get a quick montage. Chaos's hands begin glowing. Nephilim looks up from her monochrome void to the monochrome sky. A young boy who looks like Faye, who hasn't been named yet, is building a tower of blocks in a white void. Real Death Note energy on that kid, by the way. Oh, yeah. I can't wait for you to find out his deal. Oh, boy. And Wilhelm looks on at his space-time compass incredibly bored like he will do for three games. Shion screams for Cosmos to stop, and we see Cosmos's eyes are blue again and her helmet has either vanished or burned off. Also, her eyes are gross because they are normal sized human eyes in her disgusting anime robot face. Like the contrast is was very off putting. Mm -hmm. I think there's a fisheye thing going on in this shot. It does look weird in a way her proportions usually don't. What she deploys, however, is definitely not a shield, as six fucking wings come out of her and caress the Elsa from below before everything fades to white. Shit, yeah. The next thing we see is the ship leveled out, flying above the Milshin Ocean. Everyone starts opening their eyes and realizing that they lived, and it's Matthews and his liftable chair that first spots something on top of the ship. When camera feeds return, we can see that Cosmos is standing on the bow, hair flying in the wind, with more than a little of her armor having either been destroyed or shed. But otherwise, she's fine. Everyone flies into the dawn, and the credits roll to Kokoro by Joanne Hogg. I knew it was Jin because he's dressed like a fucking weeb. God damn it. <laughs> and what Chris is referring to is we have a bunch of scenes beside the credits. So here are the credit scenes uh, in short um so first we've got jin uzuki kneeling before the grave of his and Xion's parents uh conveniently buried on the cliff where surge died in chrono cross <laughs> you fight indiana jones here 
Yeah. <laughs> as as the proto Merkaba debris burns up in a shower of stars above him. It looks sick. It does yeah. look sick. This is the best part of these. You should look up the ending cutscene. Like the part where it breaks up looks sick also. Like really great detail on all of the components coming off. It's not just like breaking apart generically. It's like coming off module by module in a really interesting way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks like this was actually designed to shed one or two things, but it's just doing all of them. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. It's like the inverse of assembling one of those 3D block puzzles. Yeah. Yes, totally. Yes. And they don't come off in identical chunks. There are different shapes like that's a room. That's a room. That's a cargo bay. What the fuck was that? Mm hmm. Yeah. It just jettisoning thousands of sections and all of them are small enough to burn up in the atmosphere instead of uh, causing mass destruction for second mill shot. It makes you go, wow, what a good looking game. And then it cuts back to Xion and you're like, oh, <laughs> yeah. So then the second credit scene is Helmer and Guinan talking about how everyone seems to still be horny for Milsha, even Albedo. The fact that Albedo is alive makes Helmer shit himself, which is incredibly stupid since that guy has been broadcasting death threats to an entire planet for the last hour. <laughs> Look, um, he's been doing the dishes and listening to the giant bombcast. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> the third... Uh, credits cutscene is Albedo saying, well, that was fun, but now all that he has to do is wait for Momo to touch the UMN. The fourth uh, credits cutscene is the one that pissed me off the most. So the Red Testament reports to <gasps> Master Wilhelm, the head of Vector. This motherfucker looks just like Diz, by the way. <laughs> Yep. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Wilhelm says that Albedo is nothing more than a key to Abel's Ark, but he also says that it is a shame to relegate him to something so minor. I recognize that this is like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like sequel hook credit sequence thing, but it's such a big reveal to show that Wilhelm, who you've seen as your boss and ally, if a little enigmatic, is the leader of one of the evil groups that attacked you and also employs Albedo. It all of a sudden just like, oh, Wilhelm is actually a primary antagonist in the credits. Also, the fact that they rejigger the entire story for two means that Albedo is, in fact, no longer something so minor. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> this being Can't one of the final things you hear in the game is really funny in hindsight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then finally, on the Elsa, Cosmos returns inside to the bridge. She says, mission complete, Shion, which is very like George W. Bush mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mission complete. Oh my god. <laughs> and then and then finally, Shion to Cosmos says, Welcome back. Fool me once, Albedo. Shame on me. Fool me twice. <laughs> you can't fool me again. You can't be fooled twice. <laughs>
video game. All right, let's recap where the plot went in this game. Wait, basically nothing happens. This whole yeah. game is a 40-hour prologue to learning about the Testaments and getting to Milsha, and that's it. Again, this was supposed to be six titles, so at that scale, but this let's makes say correct, sense. right? Yeah. I'm not opposed to it because the pacing is excellent and the things that happen are cool, right? This is like just the whole game is getting ready to leave Tatooine or whatever, wherever John Luke Picard lives. <laughs> yeah. Also, the world building is really rich, though. Like yeah. every time that it seemed like things were building to no consequence, we still got background details about, you know, why the world is the way it is, what the philosophies of the people in power are and what the conflict might look like. So it's like in plot beats in terms of the overall arc of the series, nothing happens. But as far as an establishing game, it is really compelling. Yeah, it saves you a lot of bullshit in the next game. You already know everything. You're ready to go. Mm -hmm. So let's just recap bit by bit. The Vector crew's goal was to deliver Cosmos to second Milsha. They technically have now, at incredible expense to human life and limb, and more than a little cost owed to the Kukai Foundation for transport. Ziggy and Momo were supposed to drop her off on second Milsha, and Ziggy has gotten a terrible D-rank as a guardian because he did some sub-Kazuma shit, <laughs> and in fact, his girl got kidnapped at least three times. Someday, Yuli Mizrahi might even end up in the same room as her daughter again, but not in this game. The Elsa crew still owe Junior and the Foundation a crap ton of cash, but they've probably cut off more than a little of that hazard pay, plus whatever Vector and Ziggy's pay for transport earns them. Chaos aggressively rejected any attempts whatsoever at character development until the very last second, giving us no more of an insight into his supernatural ass than when the game began. The Edo siblings, Negrito, Albedo, and Rubido, all clearly have some connection to the Zohar, space-time nonsense, Milsha, but nobody wants to tell us anything other than one's a key, one's a coward, and one's an admin. Margulis and Utik took nothing but L's in this game, and I bet you forgot they were still alive after they vanished when the song showed up. I did forget until just now. Yep, because they don't even show up in this ending scene. Which is wild because one of the most consequential things that actually happened to this game, as far as, you know, the world state, is that Utik installed itself into the levers of government, into the seats of power, in this just massive coup. So now there are a bunch of religious terrorists in all of these government positions. Now, there were religious terrorists of a different flavor in there before, but um, yeah, it's Utic and Margulis were the primary antagonists for like the first half of this game, and the shit that they did matters. The game totally forgot about them. The linguistic backflips you did to not use the phrase deep state is admirable. <laughs> Speaking of the deep state, the Federation has lost two whole fleets over the course of this game and is severely crippled. The second one was all of them. Yeah, there's there's technically some ships, but basically we've just crippled the Federation entirely with our bullshit. Mm -hmm. And Miyuki got the biggest come up of anyone in this game, basically getting to become Shion's equivalent in another division at much less risk to life and limb. Three cheers to Miyuki, the secret VIP of this game. She 
get promoted after mailing a nuke through the USPS. I know. <laughs> Miyuki owns. I'm going to give you a spoiler here. I love every stupid second tier character who's just on the edge of this and is a normal person character in this series. Miyuki rules. Alan rules. The little chef bot on the Elsa rules. They have so much fun. Everyone but Hammer is good. Yeah, fuck Hammer. Hammer doesn't get anything fun to say, and he looks like a bitch, and I hate him. <laughs> Hammer wow. sucks. Yeah, ha- Hammer is the only one who sucks. Because <laughs> the rest of the Elsa crew have arcs. Hammer is just kind of always Otacon, but only Metal Gear Solid 1 Otacon. Right. So through this game, we also learned that the kind of two major events that the universe has had to reckon with. The first is the Life Recycling Act, which we've talked about at length over the course of the season. That basically is is the reason why there are uh, so many fucked up realians, androids, and cyborgs in this world because uh, it was, you know, done to solve a a human labor and military problem, essentially. And it's been on the books for the last couple hundred years and has severely fucked up society. And then the second is uh, the Milshin conflict, which brought the Gnosis into the world on a large scale, seems to have had way more hands in the pot, a lot more people than initially thought trying to use this Milshin conflict and and the Gnosis event as some kind of way to reach heaven in one way or another. And then these URTVs, these artificial life forms were also part of the problem because in this event, they all went crazy, and instead of destroying the wave consciousness known as Udu, they succumbed to it. The plot of this game is really just the Federation is Sele, and Utic is Nerve. The Federation just wants to do, like, instrumentality and evolve humanity. The Federation is the Japanese government. Yeah. Well, I'm saying in terms of, like, what they want, would want out of a second impact, right? Right. Well, no, the Federation it basically gets chumped. The two players are Vector and Utic. Those are your Sele and Nerve. At this point, I don't think I still know anything about Vector. Yeah, Ve- Vector is just kind of the corporation behind the scenes. They don't really turn into the other player. So, yeah, I, it's at this point in the story, we still think it's the Federation versus Utic and, okay. not, and not Vector versus Utic. All right, tell me about these other bullshit games that are apparently good, but have the worst names. (laughs) So the only game that comes out between is Xenosaga Freaks. This is a very strange companion disc to the first game, featuring a full encyclopedia of the world and story to this point, a Xenosaga reskin of a Namco word puzzle title, a demo of Xenosaga 2, which I'm sure sold it to a couple of people before that game came out, and the weird-ass comedy visual novel. Imagine making Xenosaga 2, knowing what that game is, and then thinking people should have a chance to know what this is like without buying it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the meat of Xenosaga Freaks is seven intertwined stories from the perspectives of Cosmos, Shion, Junior, Ziggy, Chaos, Momo, and Alan. 
Each of them is involved in part of a very, very strange day for the cast, in which the Professor and Scott decide they're going to upgrade Cosmos with some cat ears and AI tweaks. Oh no. A plan that goes so awry, it leads to Cosmos shooting up massive parts of the Elsa and Durandal chasing a cat only she can see. Why is she shooting a cat? Well, it's it's a long story. Okay, I don't want to know. Momo catching a nanovirus, and the Professor and Scott also having some kind of probably illicit video of Xion, which comes up a few times. Fucking weird. That's weird. <laughs> word. word. Dude, I'm, I'm underselling this so much. You have no idea. Because if I tried to actually flesh out all the threads over seven fucking visual novel stories, we'd be here a bit. The story also has a mechanic called the boost quiz, where in every story there will be a trivia challenge at one point. 100% it, and you get a bonus scene at the end of that character's scenario. These range from heartwarming, like Ziggy and Momo having a heart-to-heart, chaos and Momo going out for a shopping day on the Durandal, to character building, chaos just kind of chills in his quarters and monologues about a day in the life on the Elsa, to the <laughs> patently absurd, where Xion gets an extended scene as payoff to the whole professor's disc thing of her slapping the ever-loving shit out of Junior and Alan because they take possession of the disc and drop it in front of her. Oh my god. Yes. This visual novel segment, hilariously enough, is the first time we hear about the horrendous circumstances that befell Ziggy's family in more detail. It's a weird drop in the middle of this farcical anime romp. Woof. Yes, because it just comes out of nowhere in the first part of his story. And then you get to have all this. They should have spelled freaks with two X's, like the one Broken Side song. They should have spelled freaks like Gon's last name with a C. <laughs> Anyhow, we're done with Xenosaga 1. What are your thoughts? Chris, what do you think? I think Xenosaga winds up being a really mediocre video game that could have been a masterpiece if not for the not even pacing in terms of cutscenes and how big dungeons are, because I don't mind that. I think that works out for me. It's literally just the pace of combat and the speed at which you move through the world that drag the game down so much. Mm -hmm. Holy fucking shit, you're in for a time. <laughs> well, like. It's a 40-hour video game that could be a 30-hour video game if attack animations were one second instead of two to four seconds and you moved 30% faster. Like, 10 hours of this game is just dead air. Yeah. I was so high on this game through the middle of this season, and then it really peaks about two-thirds of the way in and then just kind of starts to slide towards the end. Yeah, it's weird because the plot gets more interesting, but the Encephalon dive is like really like the last time that the gameplay is super interesting. Right. And then the whole ending dungeon is like extremely anticlimactic, like not only in terms of it not feeling very urgent and not being a very engaging dungeon, but also it felt like all of these different plot threads were coming to a head and then everything gets whittled down to just a face off between Junior and Albedo and then an escape sequence. And so it feels immediately instead of like the end of a game it feels like the end of like a cliffhanger like a mid tv season cliffhanger before they go on a month-long hiatus i do regret to inform you that all the encounters are actually extremely mechanically interesting even like with the setup i had like if you had gone in and played it using the turn order stuff i bet you would have had a fucking great time okay yes but i was also just so 
done with the game because it wasn't engaging me intellectually like it had been before. And so, yeah, I, I was just I fully admit that I probably hindered my own experience by spamming an insta kill summon through the last half of this last dungeon but like no judgment i get it i'm just saying that you probably actually would have enjoyed it they actually bring yeah. it back because like this is the frustrating thing for me is that um the nietzschean philosophy has a point and isn't just techno babble uh and isn't like just reference for references sake the reason for using all of this jewish mysticism terminology it's still you know very jrpg borrowing from judeo-christian religion shit because they think it's cool but they actually paid attention to the definitions and incorporated those definitions instead of just using the words because it really is about these people you know trying to essentially walk into the kingdom of heaven and getting hoisted for trying to walk into the kingdom of heaven and not, you know, not being able to comprehend the face of God, essentially. And so, like, those things were more considered than I remembered them being and that it ends up feeling like a wet fart by the end of it. Man, I was grumpy about the end of this game, like, real grumpy. Oh, also... Fucking anime horny crimes. Just unacceptable anime horny crimes. I I actually think after our discussion that the censorship makes it worse. Absolutely worse. It does. It does. Good news. They only really make one major change in the second. Now, that said, uh, we are about to take a brief hiatus between seasons it's going to be like three months. It'll be longer than usual. Um, I have to move a house. Uh, I have to play the entirety of Xenosaga 2 to figure out where the episodes episodes should be. And we have to like book guests and get ahead on recording. So it'll be, be like two to three months and then we'll catch you again. But we will be back because I have played episode two and episode one plus two too much to give up on this at this point. Yeah, we're in it. Yeah. And I have notes. I have <laughs> so many notes. So, yeah, yeah we'll be back. It will be really interesting. Um, Xenosaga 2 has a nightmarish reputation, and it has a nightmarish reputation for a reason, but, um, you know, Xenosaga Episode 1 has also kind of turned into a laughing stock. It, it's kind of widely mocked at this point, and... I was pleasantly surprised for most of it that uh, it held up way better than I was anticipating. So I'm not expecting to be pleasantly surprised by episode two, but I am coming into it with as clear of a heart as I can. Yeah, Xenosaga episode one is a real Final Fantasy 13 in that people are correct that it is bad, but are incorrect about the reason why it is bad. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys have any commercials for the listeners? I have a website where all my projects can be found at hellscaper.com. You can listen to some music that I make by going to canonanddevarin.bandcamp.com to hear me and my buddy Nick or uh, soundcloud.com slash catastrophizer to hear my weird sad demos while I am actively working on a weird sad album. You can listen to Ryan and I's podcast Lightning Strikes Thrice Extreme by visiting our Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash pitch drop and kicking in as little as a buck a month it is this podcast but about final fantasy 14 the mmo
thanks for listening. We'll catch you whenever this resumes. Peace out, fuckers. Bye-bye. Farewell. <laughs>